1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commanded the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Gospel of our Lord. encourage you to have a Bible or an app open in front of you for this passage. If you've ever read this passage, uh, reading through the Gospel of Luke in your own private daily devotions or whatever, it's uh, not the easiest passage, and uh, so I think it'll help all of us to actually have it in front of us as we think about it uh, this morning. But first, let me ask God's help as we uh, spend time in this passage. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm not much of a golfer, uh, but I do get out occasionally just enough to know the, the truth of that quote. You may have heard that golf is a good walk spoiled. Uh, I did play more while uh, living in Ireland, and it was actually while I was living in Port Rush on the north coast of Northern Ireland that I had my most uh, sobering golfing experience. Some American friends were visiting, and they sort of insisted that I would go play uh, Royal Port Rush golf course with them. Uh, Royal Port Rush is a, is a tricky course. It's, uh, it hosted the British Open back in 2019. And uh, one of the challenges is that the fairways are incredibly narrow. On either side of the fairways, you've got very thick rough made up of gorse. You hit, uh, have a mishit ball into any of that rough, you're, you're not going to find it. In fact, that day, a successful hole for me going around that course was that I only lost one ball each hole. Uh, that's how bad it was that day. But as well as the fairways, um, in, in addition, there's the challenge of the wind. I don't know how many of you are golfers, if you've ever played any of the courses, in, uh, the, the well-known courses in Ireland or in the Great Britain. But uh, if you have, you'll know the challenge of uh, the wind can uh, provide as you, as you try to make a way around those linked courses. And indeed, some of the great British Open winners from the late 1800s, men like Harry Varden, J.H. Taylor, James Braird, uh, were famous for uh, 
working out how to negotiate the wind by mastering keeping the golf ball low to the, the ground to prevent it ballooning up in the air, the wind catching it and blowing it in a direction that they, they didn't want it to go. But in more recent years, one player has garnered more recognition for that shot than any other. Tiger Woods may not have invented or discovered the shot, but he certainly made it famous such that it's now been renamed as the Tiger Stinger or the Stinger Golf Shot. And if you've ever seen Tiger or any other golfers play this shot, uh, you'll recall how the ball just takes off like a bullet out of a rifle and it travels along a low trajectory, piercing through the wind and more often than not arriving at its intended destination. Now, I tell you that because Jesus' parables have been said to be stories with a sting in the tail, T-A-L-E, a sting in the tail. That is, on the surface, these stories look somewhat innocuous, charming little narratives full of familiar images uh, that easily grab our imaginations. But in reality, they're sort of like a stinger shot, designed to evade our psychological defenses, to penetrate through to our hearts and our minds in spite of every wind of resistance that's coming in the other direction. And we have such a sting in the tale of today's parable, a parable traditionally called the parable of the dishonest manager. Jesus used all his parables as a way of helping us understand the nature of his kingdom, the kingdom of God, to try to understand what it means to live under the rule and reign of God in our lives, and what it would mean for any of us to come into that kingdom and, and live as part of that kingdom. And that's the purpose of this parable as well, despite, as I said earlier, many people considering it to be Jesus's most confusing and frustrating parable. But here's what I hope we're going to understand about the kingdom of God from this parable this morning, that kingdom people don't live in the now for now, they live in the now for then. Kingdom people don't live in the now for now. They live in the now for then. And to get to see how Jesus takes us there, uh, we're going to think about this parable under two headings today. First of all, that kingdom people are shrewd. And secondly, that kingdom people invest in people. Kingdom people don't live in the now for now. Kingdom people live in the now for then. So first, let's think about how kingdom people are shrewd. This parable comes right on the heels uh, of Jesus's perhaps best-loved parable of all, the parable of the prodigal son. In fact, it's on the heels of three parables, as you may recall, in Luke chapter 15, about lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And in each of those parables, what was lost is found, and as a result, there is unbridled joy and celebration. Those parables paint a beautiful picture of heaven's joy over each and every person who, having previously wandered away from God in repentance and faith, returns to God into his loving open arms. And the words of the, the, of the last parable, of the father to the elder son about the younger son, are actually words that would be appropriate for every one of us who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus. Luke 15, 32, the father says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. But I want you to notice how Luke then transitions from that chapter into our chapter. As he says in chapter 16, verse 1, he, that is Jesus, also said to his disciples, 
And with that also, Luke presents what comes next at the beginning of chapter 16 as as something of a continuation of what was in chapter 15, that rather than just thinking in 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 the kind of traditional way of a set of three parables in Luke 15, if you broaden your understanding with that word also, it's actually a set of four. But notice that with this fourth parable, Jesus' audience changes, that now he's addressing a different group. At the beginning of chapter 15, we're told that he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. They've been moaning and grumbling about how much time Jesus is spending uh, with the tax collectors and the sinners. According to later on in chapter 16, those Pharisees are still milling around. But Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 16, turns his attentions to the disciples. Why? Because he wants to apply those parables of Luke 15 to his followers. He's setting up this parable to ask a specific question to us along these lines. He's saying, assuming that you're rejoicing like heaven is rejoicing over God bringing in the lost, over God making dead people alive again, spiritually speaking, practically speaking, how is that joy reflected in your life? How is that joy seen in your life? And there are many ways where that joy could be seen, but Jesus is going to here hone in on one particular way. He's not going to unveil it completely until he provides us with the sting of this tale, but first he tells the tale. And the tale, the parable, involves a wealthy man whose business interests are run for him by essentially a fund manager. However, it comes to the attention of the wealthy man that the manager is underperforming, or as Jesus puts it at the end of verse 1, wasting his possessions. We don't know how the the manager is wasting the possessions, whether he was somewhat lavish in the use of his expense account or some other way, but it seems that someone has gone and squealed to the boss, told the boss about the manager's squandering ways, all of which results in a summons to the office. And from verse 2, it doesn't seem like the conversation in the office takes very long. It goes along the lines of, what on earth is going on here? I need you to turn in the books. I need you to hand over the accounts because you're done here. You're fired. The manager realizes it's quickly going to be curtains for him as far as this current employment situation goes. His manager's on to him. But it doesn't appear that the uh, sacking is with immediate effect. There does seem to be a bit of a time lag here such that the manager has time to think and to hatch a plan before his departure. And a plan he hatches. A plan that is built on not living in the now for now, but living in the now for then. Look at verses 3 to 4. Manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And you sort of get the sense that this manager has lived a pretty comfortable life up to this point. He's been accustomed to having the nice things, the good things in life. But now as he's considering his new job opportunities, he's not particularly liking what he's seeing. He's had a good white-collar job up to this point. He doesn't really want to go blue-collar. He's no interest in digging ditches. The only calluses he might have had were on his elbows from propping up his arms on his desk every day. Manual labor was certainly not for him. The other prospect he sees was begging. He's too ashamed to do that. So rather than risking having to use his back, the manager uses his brains, and he comes up with a plan So that when he's finally going to be escorted out of the building carrying his little box of personal belongings, he's going to have people ready to offer him hospitality. 
So what's the plan? Well, we read about what the manager does in verses 5 to 7 here. Manager calls in his bosses, uh, many debtors, one by one. He invites each one to essentially tear up the existing promissory note. He presents a new note for the debtor to sign, sends him on, a way, on his way, assuring him that he'll take care of the details from that point on. Jesus gives us just two examples here in the parable of what must have been uh, happened over and over again with all the many, many debtors. The first of those examples, this debtor owes the man, we're told, a hundred measures of oil. That was about 875 gallons. If you're trying to imagine how much that is, if you fill your bathtub up to the rim 25 times, that's about how much that is, just because I know you were asking. All of which is to say that this was not a domestic amount. This is not the kind of amount of oil that you're using when you're cooking your dinner in the evening. The manager's negotiating the financing of a business transaction. The people involved were involved with a shipment of, of, of goods. And so the money involved here was not insignificant either. New York Magazine updated its olive oil ratings in March. I'm sure you all knew that, but I thought I'd tell you anyway. Iliada Extra Olive, uh, Extra Virgin Olive Oil, uh, it, which it rates as the best for cooking, uh, currently goes for $53 a gallon, which means that this debt converted into today's money was in the ballpark of $46,000, not an insignificant amount of money. The manager tells the debtor, cut it in half. Next guy comes along. He owes 40 liters of wheat. The manager reduces his debt by 20%. So you get the picture. Now, if you take the time to read some of the commentators in this, they're kind of trying to look behind the scenes and work out exactly what's going on here. So some say, well, you know, the manager's just cutting out the high interest that was built into the note, or perhaps he's just deleting his own commission from the charges such that the boss actually wasn't going to lose anything himself. But all of that really is conjecture. We're not told that in the text. What the text does suggest is that the adjustment of these bills were solely a selfish ploy on the part of the manager to secure his own future. It's all about him. If you read, just look, scan over verses three and four. It's all me's. It's all eyes. It's all about him. Scheme's all about planning for his future now that he's been fired. Now, up to this point in the parable, there's really nothing that surprising. In fact, some of you might be thinking, you know what, this manager sounds suspiciously like some of the people I've known who work over on Wall Street. Nothing total, really surprising in this behavior. And that's true because the surprise is what comes out of Jesus' mouth next in the parable. It's the punchline that raises people's eyebrows because in verse 8, Jesus provides us with the sting in this particular tale where he says this, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So Jesus doesn't end this parable with, isn't it terrible that people do that kind of thing? Don't be like this manager. No, the sting in the tale of this tale is that you should learn from this man, not from his dishonesty. Hear me well on this. He's not commending the man for his dishonesty. Don't come up to me after the service today and say, I can't believe Jesus would commend to us a dishonest man. He's not doing that. He's commending him just for one thing, and that's his shrewdness here. He's saying it's his ingenuity you are to admire, not his, not his lack of integrity. In fact, if you want a one-sentence summary of this parable, Jesus actually gives it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 16, where he tells his followers to be as shrewd 
as snakes and as innocent as doves. And it was with such shrewdness that this manager quickly learned to live not in the now for now, but in the now for then. So that's the story, and Jesus ends the story telling us we should follow this bad man's good example, to take the title of today's sermon, namely his shrewdness, that he was astute, he was ingenious, he was clever, he was creative, he was sharp. But again, look at what Jesus says then in the second half of verse 8. He says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What's Jesus talking about there? Well, he's saying that those of us who are Christians, the sons of light in this verse, have much to learn from an unbelieving world when it comes to shrewdness. So what is it that we have to learn? One old Scottish commentator suggested that the world demonstrates an ability here that we as the church tend to be weak in, and what this commentator called an ingenuity of contrivance. An ingenuity of contrivance. Now, that might sound like a quaint, uh, archaic sort of phrase. It really is, but I think it actually fits well what Jesus is talking about here, because he's, what he's saying is that when people in business or in nonprofits set about to contrive a, a strategy, they tend to be far more ingenious in their thinking, their methodology, their application than the average group of Christians who are trying to reach their neighborhood or trying to reach their city, trying to reach the world for Christ. And most of you living and working in New York for, for years now, perhaps, know this better than I do, that, that at work you'll brainstorm, you'll strategize, you'll, you'll not be afraid to try new initiatives. There'll be a willingness to fail along the way as you strive towards to move towards a greater success. That in the world, people set out on a venture, and the dangers don't deter them, the difficulties don't discourage them, the distractions don't divert them. And Jesus seems to be saying here, that doesn't tend to be an accurate picture of my church. Now, I think it has to be said, that's not always the case. You may know, and I certainly know, of churches that have indeed acted very shrewdly as they've sought to minister in Christ's name over the years. But the fact is that my, my general experience, and I think Jesus' words here bear this out, is that that's not the norm in Jesus' church. That in, The norm is that God's people just sort of piddle along with many happy just to keep things the way they've always been, where new things aren't tried because someone will say, well, we once did try something new and it didn't work. One commentator put it like this, if the average business took as much raw material to get as little return as the average local church does over 12 months, it would deserve to be completely bankrupt. Jesus says kingdom people are shrewd. But then what Jesus does in this parable is he applies this shrewdness in one very specific area of our lives, which brings us to our second point, which is that kingdom people invest in people. Look at verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So Jesus here picks up the shrewd actions of the manager, and he applies it specifically to how we should be shrewdly investing our financial resources now, not for now, but for then. And there's actually quite a lot to unpack in this verse, but let's start with this phrase, unrighteous wealth. If you look in some of the older translations, you'll find that uh, many of them leave, leave this in the untranslated old Aramaic word, mammon, 
Some of you may have heard that word over the years, the word mammon. It's actually a word that only appears four times in the New Testament, and three of them appear in our passage today. It comes in verse 9, where it's translated in the ESV as wealth, verse 11 as wealth, verse 13 as money. That is to say, mammon is not the New Testament's normal word for money. It's sort of Jesus's nickname for money here. And by giving money a name, Jesus is intimating how tricky and powerful money can be in each of our lives. He personifies money through its nickname because he knows that money is never just treasure. It's treasure that we're constantly tempted to trust. It exerts this magnetic, mysterious power that draws our hearts to it, even when we know better. That's why Jesus concludes this bigger section with the warning that you can't say that you trust God when your functional trust in life is in your money. Jesus puts it, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, he says in verse 13. But at the same time, notice how nuanced Jesus's approach to money is here. He issues something of an insult to mammon by calling it unrighteous. But at the same time, he's giving us instructions here as to how to use it well. He knows that money's tricky, but he wants us to be counter-tricky, to be shrewd, to be wise, to be clever in how we handle money. We need to learn how to use money as money's trying to use us. And here Jesus says, the shrewd, wise way to use money is to invest in people because when your money fails, those people may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So the next question in this verse is, what does Jesus mean when he says, when your money fails? Jesus is clearly relating our situation here to that of the manager in the parable in which we too are living in this financial system that one day is going to come to a screeching halt. Now, this is not Jesus putting on his economist hat and kind of giving you insider information that in three, six months or whatever, the, the, the market's going to crash. Now, this is Jesus's way of telling us that we all live in a temporary economy because a day is coming when the world as we know it will end. And Jesus will return to usher in a new world, a consummated, perfect kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And in the bank of that world, the exchange rate for your dollar is zero. It's zero. And no matter how much you have, your money is going to fail you on that day. So Jesus is very kindly giving us a heads up in this passage, warning us against foolishly thinking that this system that we now live in is the entire story, is, is reality, in which money is the key to our longevity, our success, and our happiness. So let me try to illustrate Jesus' point here through something that I think most of us will be familiar with. Imagine you're, you're playing a game of Monopoly with members of your family or friends, and on this particular day, in this particular game, you're absolutely killing it. You're sweeping the board. You've acquired all the utilities. I can see some people looking at each other like you've had this happen before. You've maxed out hotels from properties to Bal from Baltic Avenue to, Bo to Broadwalk, all at the same time as just rolling in a massive wad of those golden $500 bills. And you're absolutely loving it because in this particular game, you're the real estate mogul. You've got so much money that you've worked out in a round or two, you're going to have more money than the bank has. So... Okay, so you win the game, but then the game's over. 
And you gather up all the pieces and you collect all the little hotels and the bills and the board and you put it all back in the box and you put the lid in the box and that's it. Why? Because the whole thing was a temporary economy. I mean, if you try to sneak out a few of those golden $500 bills and take them over to Macy's to buy something, they're just going to laugh in your face, right? You're going to say, that doesn't count here because those bills don't work, don't count in the, in the real world out here. They belong back in the box. That's the only place where they have value. So you might have been a millionaire in there, but your monopoly money is no good out here. But then think if there was a way to spend monopoly money inside the game in such a way that you could benefit out in the real world. A way to make your, your uh, real estate deals a monopoly make a difference in, in your life in Manhattan and Brooklyn and, and so forth. Imagine in the course of a game, all of a sudden, you start acting suspiciously nice to one of the other players. You start selling them properties that they've been wanting for the last number of rounds, trading with them in a way that significantly helps them, but it hurts you. And, and everybody else in the game is starting to think, this, there's something fishy going on here. This is looking weird to me. And slowly it dawns on them that you've decided that this game is a dead loss, and you'd rather do someone a monopoly favor in the hopes that you'll get a real-world favor in return. So when the game is over and the box is closed up, lo and behold, your mom makes you your favorite dessert because you traded her park place so that she could beat your dad in this game. You converted worthless paper money for your mom's lemon meringue pie. That in the end, you weren't playing Monopoly at all. You were sort of playing meta-monopoly for real-world results. And that's Jesus' point in the parable here. He says, one day this world as we know it is all going back in the box. In fact, you're going in a box too. You're, you can't take your money with you. And even if you could, remember, the exchange rate for your dollar is zero. But what if you could use the money here now for real world, capital R, capital W, return? That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, Jesus is talking about heaven here, but notice how he describes heaven here. He doesn't describe it as puffy clouds with you strumming harps on there. He doesn't describe it as a place with, you know, the, the, the streets paved in gold. He doesn't even describe it here in kind of the biblical image of glory. He describes heaven here as a place of friends. The heaven is a world of friends. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century theologian, once described heaven as a world of love, that heaven has always been a world of love, as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have enjoyed the love of one another for eternity past and into eternity future. And the good news for us is that while we've, we've actually disqualified ourselves from this world of love through our lack of love to God and to one another, that Jesus left that world of love to come into this world to pour out his love to us, the unloving and the loveless, and to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our lovelessness. And that through that death and his subsequent resurrection from the dead, he did everything necessary to requalify us for this world of love so that for everyone who puts their trust in this Jesus, whose functional trust is not in money or anything else but in Jesus, 
we get to go to this world of love where we experience not only the love of God, but as Jesus says here, we get to experience the love of friends too. But here's where our minds, I think, struggle to take in all that Jesus is describing here. Because Jesus here is really painting a picture of, of us arriving in heaven and, you know, as we're walking around, getting our bearings in heaven, someone, someone comes up to us and taps us on the shoulder and, and says, excuse me, because they're a little more polite in heaven than in New York, you'll discover. You, you, you belong to that church on the corner of Lafayette and Clinton, right? You say, yeah. You know, I, I lived in Clinton Hill after I moved to New York from, from another place in the country while I was, while I was working in the city. And, and when I arrived in the city, I have to tell you, I had a really negative, negative view of Christianity and Christians. But one of your members lived in the same apartment building as I did, and, and they befriended me. And one day they brought me to your church, and I kept coming to that church. And eventually, I actually put my, my trust in Jesus. My life was never the same again. And I know it takes a lot to run a church and do all that, and I just, I just want to thank you. Thank you. And you kind of turn away, and you're trying to process this conversation, going, that was a little weird. And then you see two people coming toward you at a distance, and uh, one of them is just gesturing to the other person, pointing at you. They come up to you, and they say, Did, didn't your college roommate go and serve as a missionary in a church plant in Tokyo? And you say, yeah. And you say, you know, I, I, I actually lived in Tokyo at the time, and I started going to that church, and I know, I know that church struggled for a long, long time, and they were completely dependent on people supporting them just to keep the lights on for a number of years. But I became a Christian in that church in Tokyo, and there aren't a lot of Christians in Japan, and that church was a lifeline to me. I want to thank you for supporting that church all those years. And they walk away, and you kind of turn, and you almost bump into this person, and this person looks at you and says, I know you. Your church partnered with, with Safe Families in New York, didn't you? Safe Families were a lifeline to me at a very, very vulnerable time in my life. And one of the people I got to know through Safe Families came from your church. And it's a, that's a long, long story that I can share you with you because we've got eternity here to tell each other stories. But I ended up becoming a Christian through my friendship with that person from your church. And I'm really grateful to Resurrection Clinton Hill for supporting Safe Families. Thank you. Can you imagine all the welcomes? I mean, there are already countless welcomes lined up for members of this congregation because of your generosity as a church through your regular giving to this church and giving to other strategic ministries that you support. And for many of you, there are countless other welcomes awaiting you because of your generosity individually to other ministries and, and missions. And, and you know, I know what it's like. On, on paper, you know, you get your monthly statements. It's just, they're just numbers. It's dollars and cents. But Jesus is saying in the real world, those dollars and cents will translate into so many welcomes from people's lives who were transformed in ways that we will not know until then. And the great thing is that there is a potential for even more countless welcomes as a result of how you and I invest in people with our money now and into the future. Jesus is telling us this, hands down, is the wisest financial investment of your resources and my resources because it's one of the very few things that will bring an eternal return. 
that every other investment is temporary. And to be honest, it's a bit of a pain in the neck because as you get closer to the end of your life, you'll spend more and more time trying to decide who's going to get what and whether you still really like Uncle Mary and Auntie Mary, uh, Uncle Jim and Auntie Mary and, or whether someone else should get their portion. And, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. If you want to invest shrewdly, invest in people, invest in the gospel, invest eternally. Let the genuineness of your Luke 15 joy, remember Luke 15, the backdrop to this, of your Luke 15 joy over God bringing in the lost be reflected in how you use your money. Be shrewd and invest in people. Don't live in the now for now. Live in the now for then. Or as the missionary Jim Elliott once famously put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. She is no fool who gives what she cannot keep to gain what she cannot lose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a, a challenging parable just in understanding it, but also in applying it. But what a beautiful picture Jesus gives us here of heaven, that heaven is indeed a world of friends. It is a world of love, and there are countless welcomes waiting for us there as we invest our resources shrewdly in this life, in the now for the then. Help us to hear what you are saying and apply it to our lives, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.